really pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Oscar Garza. Oscar Garza has specialized in cultural journalism throughout his career. He has served as senior editor for content at the Los Angeles Daily News and editor-in-chief of Tu Ciudad, an award-winning magazine about Latino life and culture in Southern California. Prior to that, Mr. Garza had a long tenure at the Los Angeles Times, where he was deputy editor of the Sunday Magazine and editor for years of the Daily Calendar section, where he supervised the jazz and pop music coverage. Mr. Garza is currently working on a book about the cultural and musical ties between Mexican-Americans and blacks in the Gulf of Mexico region, and he regularly posts musings about music on his blog, which is titled To the Sublime. He has hosted many memorable so evenings for Socolo in the past, and we are always pleased to welcome back Mr. Oscar Garza. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Gregory, and thank uh, all of you for being here tonight. I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, I'm really happy to be here uh, tonight. Um, I've been a big fan of Charles Mingus's for a long time, but have sort of immersed myself even more in the last uh, few weeks once we decided that we were going to do this. Uh, first, some basic facts before I introduce our, our panelists. Uh, some basic facts. Charles Mingus was born April 22, 1922, in Nogales, Arizona. He came to Watts as an infant with his parents, and he spent his formative years and young adulthood here. He took up the trombone around the age of eight, but soon switched to cello because his parents wanted him and his two sisters to play classical music together. You will later learn how and when he switched to the bass. He also was a gifted pianist. He stayed in Los Angeles until he was uh, about 30 years old when he moved to New York where he spent the rest of his career. Uh, this year marked the 30th anniversary of his death at the age of 56 from Lou Gehrig's disease. That occurred on January 5th, uh, 1979. Last Wednesday would have been his 87th birthday. And now some salient facts about Charles Mingus. He was, uh, um, complicated. He was, by all accounts, including his own, mercurial, angry, impatient, demanding, exacting, brash, headstrong, fitful, and volcanic. He was deep as the day is long. He was also a musical genius, part of the rarefied pantheon of jazz. And tonight we are examining and celebrating his legacy with a tremendous group of, uh, of people. Uh, I know envy is uh, one of the seven deadly sins, but uh, I, I am not uh, ashamed to say that I am envious of Hal Wilner. Uh, Hal is, a, Hal is a, a record producer. He's really a music curator who has worked with the finest artists in jazz, classical, and popular music. He has produced albums for Lou Reed, Bill Frizzell, Lucinda Williams, Laurie Anderson, and Marianne Faithful, including her recently released uh, title, Easy Come, Easy Go. And he has produced a, a series of tribute albums to singular artists such as the Italian film composer Nino Rota, Thelonious Monk, and Kurt Weill. In 1992, he produced A Weird Nightmare, Meditations on Mingus, which included contributions from, among others, Vernon Reed, Henry Rollins, Keith Richards, Charlie Watts, Don Byron, Leonard Cohen, Diamanda Galas, Chuck D, and Elvis Costello, and that's pretty indicative of the lineups that he puts together for those projects. The following year, he produced 13 pictures, the Charles Mingus Anthology for uh, Rhino Records. He is the longtime music director of Saturday Night Live, and tomorrow morning he will return to New York where he is serving as a music consultant for Pete Seeger's 90th birthday celebration, which takes place this Sunday at Madison Square Garden and will be videotaped 
for broadcast on PBS. Hal, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us tonight. Also with us tonight is the gifted musician, poet, and songwriter Eric Mingus. Eric has released three albums under his name, including his most recent, which is titled Healing Howl. Another of his recent projects is Clockwork Mercury, his collaboration with the saxophonist Catherine Sikora. He, uh, Eric is the youngest child of Charles Mingus, born to the bassist and his third wife, Judy Starkey. Eric, thank you for being with us tonight. My collaborator tonight is uh, an old friend, Emery Holmes II. Emery is an L.A.-based novelist, playwright, poet, children's story writer, and journalist. His news stories on American crime, schools, and the arts have appeared on the pages of the San Francisco Chronicle, the L.A. Times, the L.A. Sentinel, the Los Angeles Daily News, the New York Amsterdam News, Los Angeles Magazine, Essence, and other publications. He has scripted scores of radio programs for national syndication, he was twice editor of the African-American Men's Monthly Players Magazine. <laughs> I should just stop there, right? Uh, for the parent company of, uh, of, of Players Holloway House, he wrote two novels, Black Rage and Sunday Hell, under his nickname Butch Holmes. Good idea. <laughs> Heavy Mr. Smevy and Justoka, his two children's books were published and distributed by his family press just in time. His crime stories have appeared in three anthologies, The Cocaine Chronicles, The Best American Short Stories of 2006, and Los Angeles Noir. I'm proud to say that Emery and I have been friends for about 30 years. I was five when we met. <laughs> uh, and tonight, uh, Emery will be reading from Charles Mingus's autobiography, Beneath the Underdog, and from the oral history project, Central Avenue Sounds Jazz in Los Angeles. And Emery uh, is gonna start us off his first passage will help us, uh, will help introduce our final guest tonight, who you will meet in just a second. One thing you gotta understand is um, Charlie Mingus wrote this book as if he was an observer in his own life. He called himself the kid, or the boy, or Charlie. This day as he leaned against the lamppost on the corner of 103rd Street and San Pedro, reading a book and waiting for customers, a tall, handsome, young black man walked up and said to him, you're that kid that plays cello. Remember me? I'm Buddy Colette. He introduced the boys to him. Major Harrison, Charles Martin, Crosby Lewis, Ralph Bledsoe, who were all laughing and grinning, though Charles failed to see anything funny. How'd you like to make some bread and wear the sharpest clothes and the latest styles? Buddy asked. Look at yourself, you dress like a hobo. I don't dig clothes anymore. How'd you like the finest chicks in town then? Charles said he wouldn't mind that at all. Go get yourself a bass, and we'll put you in our union swing band, Buddy told the boy. We can use you. Get a bass? That's right. You're black. 
You're never going to make it in classical music. No matter how good you are, you want to play, you got to play a Negro instrument. You can't slap a cello. So you got to learn to slap that bass. Charles liked the way Buddy talked and admired his proud carriage and adult manner and extreme good looks. So he went home and discussed it with his father, explaining that he had a chance to make a whole lot of money if he traded his cello for a bass. His parents, as usual, not really knowing, but hoping for the best, agreed to help. Next day, he and Daddy Mingus went down to Schwimmer's on Broadway in Midtown Los Angeles and turned in the cello for a brand new German-made double bass. And Daddy forked over $130 in addition. Ladies and gentlemen, on the far side of the stage, Mr. William Marcel Buddy Collette. Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. Buddy, but, buddy Hank, let, give me, let me just say a couple things about you. Okay. I would say that he needs no introduction, but, but for the record, Buddy Collette is a treasure in Los Angeles jazz history. Saxophonist, flautist, clarinetist, composer, band leader, and teacher, Buddy Collette was a stalwart of the Central Avenue jazz scene. He is said to be the first African-American musician to perform on television on Groucho Marx's program, You Bet Your Life, as part of the studio orchestra. He was also a pioneer civil rights activist who worked to de desegregate the musicians' union here. His students included Eric Dolphy, Charles Lloyd, Sonny Chris, and James Newton. In 1996, the Library of Congress commissioned Mr. Collette to write and perform a concert to celebrate his long career. And most important to tonight's program, Buddy Collette was Charles Mingus's rock. Buddy Collette, thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Joe. What a moment, especially growing up with this young man, Mr. Mingus. We met when we were about 12 years old. And uh, most of this is true that I can remember. Uh, actually, I did, I met Charles at Compton Avenue and uh, somebody told me, he said, you will know Charles when you see him. He plays cello, he's bow-legged. And, you know, they had a lot of things, and so I remember all of that. So one day I see this gentleman walking on Compton in, uh, Compton Avenue near uh, Success. But anyway, uh, maybe that was a good point, Success. He really made it, that guy did. I didn't know uh, what he was doing half the time, but I understood it in a way, if you can believe that. We used to get up car from Watts when we'd go to Los Angeles to uh, rehearse with bands and things like that. And uh, Charles would always zip the bass, the cover off the bass. He said, let's play. I said, well, we might get into trouble. I didn't know whether we were allowed to play on the red car, but he thought it was okay. So I joined him. 
took out the saxophone. Once he zipped the cover off, I said, he can take the cover off. I can take the, the saxophone out of the case. And we had jam, and the people just loved it. And it surprised me because I thought the people would really react to it as being not the thing to do. And so uh, we'd play it, and when we didn't play it, the people would request it. Aren't you going to play a song today? And, and we would do that. And it got to be a point where uh, I think that helped us to get better because uh, it's amazing. You seem to grow if you have an audience to play for. You know, playing alone at your house or something doesn't do it. We watched their faces, and so we knew that we were doing pretty well. We could play some of the songs we'd heard from Ellington and Basie and bands like that. That so on. You actually really get to your confidence together because when you're playing good, there's something that you have that you, you're proud of. We can play like Ellington. We can play like not quite, but I'm saying, you know, we felt we could because the people would hear those melodies and they would belong, um, believe that uh, they knew them already. And we reminded them of something that only the, the great players played at that time because we were doing it all the time. Charles would come to my house every day of the week and always wanted to jam with me or, or play together. And he was not happy unless he was playing his instrument. And a lot of times he wasn't happy when he was playing it either. <laughs> uh, because he, he, uh, he knew uh, what he wanted. And the, the last story I remember when I was in New York with him from the town hall concert. I don't know if any of you remember that. But uh, I got a call from George Ween, who's a big pr producer. And... Uh, he called me and wanted to know if I could come to New York and do a concert with Charles Mingus. And I said, yeah, I'm very busy, but I could come there if, if they could work out the, the money because you don't just fly into New York. I was very busy at the time doing two or three shows here. But what finally happened was that uh, Mingus called back about an hour or so later, and he said, well... Um, George Ween wants me to do a concert, but I don't want to do a concert. I would like to do an open recording session. So let, listen to this, an open recording session. I don't think anybody's ever really done it like that. People have recorded and didn't call it open recording session, but Mingus wanted to do something that was new. He was always into new things, a new idea, a new rhythm or something. And so uh, so then before I got there, I heard that uh, Mingus had fallen out with George Wayne because he's not going to do a concert. He's definitely not going to do it. So they had one of the best bands in the world. They had all the top guys in New York, Snooky Young, Ernie Royal, um, Clark Terry. I could just name them on and on. Bernie Glow um, and... Uh, trombone section of Britt Woodman, um, all the top trombone players. They had six basses, Joe Benjamin, um, uh, all the guys. It's all right. 
And, and what the, the, is that the concert where he had the problem with Jimmy Nepper? Problem with Jimmy Nepper? Yeah. No, you mean the time when Mingus had <laughs> Jimmy Nepper? We're, we're, we're making him sound like such a terrible man. I'm sorry. <laughs> He was well, not. He was not. And and and, uh, and Mr. Well, no, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you rest there just for a second, so I can get Mr. Wilner and and, and Eric involved as well. Um, okay. Yeah. Definitely. You want to hear that? <laughs> you is it? You want to you want to tell the rest of the town hall concert story? Go I, ahead. I will. You want me to tell it? You want Eric to do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an it's an interesting story. Uh, but you see, then uh, we had a couple of rehearsals, I don't know, in a hall or somewhere. Jerome Richardson and a bunch of them were there, all my dear friends. And um, I flew in. But I knew any time I would come where Mingus was, it could be interesting, meaning that uh, <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. And he kept telling me, he says, I'm not going to do a concert. And I knew he wasn't going to do a concert then if he kept said that. Because a lot of things he wouldn't tell me, but the, this one he said, I'm not going to do a concert. I can't do it. And so what happened is that uh, we uh, had the best band, and we rehearsed a lot. And he always would ask me questions like, can the musicians play any music I write? And I said, if they want to, they can. <laughs> because there are times when somebody writes a note even higher than you can play. And all you're doing is straining to try to reach that note. And that still doesn't do it. You didn't make the note. And it sounds ugly sometimes when you're squeezing for a note and you don't get it. So the concert came off? Or what, what? Well, it didn't come off, no. <laughs> Let me tell you why, why it didn't come off. Because Mingus, when he gets his head set, uh, you, you can't sway him. He knew what he wanted. And uh, so uh, the one thing he said, we, we only fell out one time. Now, if you can believe that, a lot of people fell out with Mingus. But we always got along, except this one time, and this was the time. He said, uh, no, he said, uh, you said that they could play any music that they wanted to. I said, yeah, they'd have to really want to because, especially trumpet, they write you so high, higher than you can play. And they don't want to look embarrassed or sound like they can't play. Sometimes they're reaching for notes and it just doesn't work. So I said to Mingus, uh, again, remember, they have to want to play. I said, would you play somebody else's music? He said, I don't play anybody's music but my own. <laughs> so all of a sudden I could see, oh, that's the way you feel. <laughs> In other words. Hal, he, uh, he did... Uh Hal played, uh, Mingus played uh, Duke Ellington, who was his uh, inspiration, I think, early on. And Hal, I wanted to, to pull you in here for a second. Um, you grew up in New York? No, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. When, uh, tell me a little bit about how the, your Mingus project came about, and, and when did you start getting into to his music? Well, um, I saw him when I was in high school. I mean, once... One starts uh, listening to jazz, um, which I started uh, around uh, 15 or so. Uh, you're going to get to Mingus very quickly. And um, I think he might have been the only of that particular generation of the top jazz pantheon, say. 
you know, Ellington, Charlie Parker, Kelly Roll Martin, I think he's definitely on that level. That, I mean, I got to see Dizzy Gillespie on, but I think Mingus was still at the height of his composing powers. Uh, this was uh, records at the time where Let My Children Hear Music, the orchestra piece, and when I moved to New York, it was that amazing band, which uh, is very underrated in history with, uh, you know, um, Don Pullen, Danny Richmond, and George, uh, George Adams, and Hamlet Blueet. So, I mean, that was it. I probably saw him every performance he did in New York, from like 74 to 77 or so. Might have been the last. It might have been Carnegie Hall, I think. Um, so, I mean, it just meant a great deal to me. And when I was uh, later on, I happened to be in someone's office uh, talking about something, and Sue Mingus called at the time. I always love to say these projects are really thought out, but <laughs> it's always of the moment. And uh, she hung up. I went, you know, Sue Mingus. I mean, that was uh, I was afraid of these people. You know, it was you know, at the time Mingus uh, was in college, and he lived on the same block I did on 10th Street. And he, I'd see him at night walking these dogs that were. I mean, he looked like he was seven foot five to me, and and they were like nine foot two. I mean, it was this image of. Uh, terror, you know. And then, you know, I saw him, you know, yell at MCs that uh, called him Charlie and uh, would stop a band. And, I mean, I saw some of those things, and, but, you know, the music was so beautiful. Anytime I would say hi, it was, it was really sweet. But, um, so, uh, I said, you yeah, know, it'd be so cool to do one of these multi-artist projects with Mingus, and, you know, and Sue uh, loved the idea. I uh, didn't know what was going to happen, <laughs> but uh, that's when that started, anyway. I don't know if that record is still in print. It is? It, it is. Uh, find it and get a hold of it. It's really a fan fantastic, fantastic record. Uh, Eric, uh, I'm a little slow on the uptake sometimes, and so I was doing all this reading uh, today, uh, and I, I, it's like a light went off. It's like, his name is Eric Mingus. I wonder if he's named after Eric Dolphy, who was your father's, one of your father's grand, grand collaborators and, and, and very close to. And then I keep reading and I see that your name is indeed Eric Dolphy Mingus. <laughs> Actually, and, I, you know, I figured it out at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's one of those, it's a little... My name would have been Kenny. <laughs> actually, had Eric Dolphy not died, and I'm sorry to say, uh, you know. But uh, actually, my, Dolphy's not my legal middle name because the uh, the nurse at the hospital couldn't believe that that would be a real name. And uh, boy, I'm sure if she stuck around for a few years, she'd get some really interesting names, you know. But yeah, uh, we were uh, you and I were chatting last night, and and uh, I asked you this. You know, it, it's funny because there are some great, great uh, jazz artists, including your father, who had sons who are musicians. Uh, Thelonious Monk's uh, son, T.S., uh, John Coltrane's son, Ravi, uh, yourself. And, and uh, in the case of Ravi Coltrane and, and T.S. Monk, they're jazz musicians. You are not precisely a jazz musician. And so I wanted to ask you two things. One was... Um, with that name, if your father's name had been Charles Smith and you were Eric Smith, you probably wouldn't have sort of this maybe expectation that people would have of you. 
What I wanted to ask you, though, was uh, was there a point where you knew you were going to be a musician but decided you weren't going to be a jazz musician in the same kind of, you know, in that path that your dad, your dad took? Well, I, I you know, I, my father, I remember him sort of one time saying, why do we have to call it jazz? Why do we have to call it classical? Why can't we just call it music? And that's the house I grew up in. I listen, you know, I, I listened to Stravinsky and Mingus and Ellington and Elvis. I mean, I listened to everything, and there was never a category. And in fact, the, my early years of touring, when I went to Europe, you went into a music store, and it was all listed A to Z. And it was never, you know, so, so you'd have, you know, Mingus, Metallica, you know, <laughs> Molly, you know, all in the same. And, and I love that, because that's how my record collection was, well, minus the Metallica, but, you know. <laughs> Which, I'm not knocking it, I just don't own the record. But, um, and, and, I, and, and also, I, I think that if you're going to call a music something, you're going to limit it. So I don't even really know what I call what I do, because all of it influenced it. I mean, my father's music is a big influence on what I do, and the blues is a very big influence, and it was a big influence on him as well. And, I mean, some of our, some of our best conversations were about music and the blues, and I, my favorite was he was telling me how much he loved Helen Wolf and the Sidemen in there, and he actually mentioned um, Hubert Sumlin, who then I actually played with, you know, and it just blew my mind, because I just remember that was the combination. He never, there was no distinction between jazz and classical, at least in our conversations in that, in that time of life, so I, I don't, I think it's dangerous to do that. I mean, I think, I think it's like, okay, you do this, so you're limited to that. Sorry, I could go on. No, no, no. I, w I wanted to cut in there just for a second because I think on your first album, the first cut on your first album is called His Blood's in Me. His Blood's in Me. Oh. So did you want to sort of, when you starting that part of your career, did you just want to you know, acknowledge it, deal with it, and, and go on well, from there? Oddly, this is a misinterpretation of my song. <laughs> uh, the first line of the song is, or it's a poem really, Grandpa blew his brains out in the house. He didn't have the courtesy to take it outside, maybe out in the backyard, out in the woods. Instead, he blew his brains out on the wall where Grandma could see. I was actually confronting the, the blood of my grandfather, who was a white man who wanted absolutely nothing to do with me. I never met him. I don't know that, half of, that part of my family. And that's what that piece was really ultimately about. And in my life, my father, from my father at least, that didn't matter. You know, and so... That's what the blood, and so that's what I'm confronting in that. About your grandfather, but I thought the second verse went on. It sounded more like your dad, yeah. but but, but, it, but it forgive me. It, it happens, but also you know, once you put your 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 art out there, it's not really yours to control what people perceive. So I mean, I remember I did that piece in New York, and this woman came up to me and said, "That's the funniest thing I ever heard of my life. You know, <laughs> that's the best piece." So, I was, so, <laughs> so man, you know, that's all right. <laughs> Uh, I, I uh, at, at did not want to make out Mr. Mingus to be so harsh, and so uh, I want to ask Emery to come back up. And uh, Emery, I think maybe just the last part of, yeah, the, of, yeah, of that second that. sequence. Uh, okay, this this uh, section here deals with uh, Charlie Mingus and and his uh, his buddies, his great great friends like Mr. Colette and Eric Dolphy. So why don't I read the First part of, of the little short piece on Buddy, and then go into the Eric piece. What do you think about that? Yeah, just make it. The first thing you're going to hear is Buddy Collette's words. Buddy Collette speaking about uh, Charlie Mingus. 
It's from, uh, tell them where it's from. This is from Central Avenue Sounds. I don't know exactly why, but we were closer than brothers, in a way. He was a problem guy in a sense, but when I was around, he was peaceful. I could do a whole book on him. People know certain stories about him, maybe like the Jimmy Nepper story. Those are things that get around. But there's another side of him, a very quiet and a very nice side, that he didn't show very much unless he was in a comfortable setting. And I would help him find that. Nothing I did particularly. I was just some person that could make him comfortable. And he believed what I said. Mr. Collette, yes. were, there, um, were there common misperceptions about your friend Charles Mingus? Uh, you, were, you were great grand friends with him your, his entire life. Great uh, friends, yes. But he, uh, s I think a little misunderstood he was as well, correct? Would you say so? Excuse me, say that last part. Was he misunderstood, do you think? Uh, well, he was, but he also was very complicated with things that he was trying to do. But uh, he had a lot of love in him all the time. His music was beautiful. So he had so many points in his favor. And, and can I tell you one thing about the uh, town hall? Please. Because there's a point I was trying to get to. And uh, what happened at the town hall, like I said, Mingus said he wasn't going to do the concert. So now we all came on the, the night of the concert with tuxedos on. Mingus came out with a, a, a leather kind of a vest, jeans, sandals. <laughs> and then uh, he walked out to the mic and he said, uh, George Weed said this is going to be a concert. If you're unhappy with that, then you can get your money and get out. And they thought he was doing comedy, you know, because, well, because he, you know, he, he didn't laugh. He just had a straight face. If you don't like a concert, then get your money and get out. You know, he insulted them, whatever. But the point was that uh, he wasn't going to change this deal. So now what happened? was one of the greatest bands I've ever been with. Every chair was just about as good as you're going to get. Now what happened, we kicked off the first number. And uh, by the time we got to uh, halfway over the piece, Mingus cut it off with his hand. He said, I wouldn't buy that, would you? <laughs> and so I knew then, I said, well, we're going to have a real interesting time because <laughs> His mood was so different. He's playful, but at the same time, he's not going to let George Weed, uh, George Ween, um, you know, move him out of the of what what that he wanted. So it was one of those fights. But what happened is uh, he also had an uncle at the time, Dixieland Band, and they were there that night too, and they played and they played great. But uh, we played for about an hour, or played part of pieces for about an hour and didn't play anything all the way through. And Mingus kept coming to the mic and saying, I wouldn't buy that one either. <laughs> and so, so that was the whole night and, and I just knew this. 
And uh, for one guy that sort of saved the show was Clark Terry. Because after we stayed there and the audience got so restless and the stage hands were uh, trying to uh, close the curtain because uh, it was almost like we were around near 11 o'clock and we hadn't played anything all the way through. <laughs> so I've never seen this before where I know somebody must have seen this, but this, the audience were pulling the curtain open and, and the, uh, the stagehands are trying to pull it closed. They, they figured it's, it's been enough of that kind of play. And some of the parts that they played was so great. They had Eric Dolphy there, namesake, right? Okay. And Eric, uh, Eric was one of the better players at that time because he was a very studious guy. And uh, most of the solos were just unbelievable that he was playing. He, was, he had found another thing at that point. But anyway, Mingus was not happy all evening. But uh, the final thing I think that I remember was that uh, uh, Clark Torrey went into uh, in a mellow tune. Ba -da 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 -da. Ellington, you know. Yeah. And so you never heard a jam session like this. And I don't know if they use that on the record, but um, most of the pieces, they only played about 30 bars, you know, and usually we had to play maybe three times that much. But uh, Mingus, for a while, he didn't even join in. They had Joe Benjamin, like I mentioned, Judge DeVivier, and, and a few more, who knows? Also the judge, what was his name? Uh, Mill Tenton, yeah. So the, all the great players were there. And uh, so what happened, uh, the, uh, let's say it was a little long time ago, but what finally happened is that uh, the band started jamming and, and they, the, the saxes were setting riffs and things. I'd love to hear that now because it's unbelievable what was going on. But uh, Mingus didn't give up. At the same time, um, two or three of the guys wanted to quit before we even got started because uh, some of the music was very hard. Yeah. And then the, the, the guys, the record guys, were rehearsing after midnight because we couldn't get time to, 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 to learn To prepare the for, the sh for the show. Yeah. To, to learn the music. But... Uh, it was one of those things that uh, we had one of the, like I said, the best bands ever, yeah. but but Mingus didn't want to let it happen. We're going to let you take a break and get a sip of water there and talk to Hal Wilner for a second. Hal, uh, yeah, no, come on. Talk, talk, talk a little bit about your approach to putting those two projects together and, and you know, given his huge, I mean, he was prolific, and given his huge catalog, how you approach deciding on what to use and, and who to use? Um, let's try to see where it all started. <laughs> the drugs were working back then. Um, no, it's, it was a very surreal uh, idea. I, um, as I said, I just had been listening to so much of his music that I, um, I whether it was correct or not, um, I 
had uh, theories or ideas of where a lot of it came from. I knew all the blues stuff. I had thought, um, I was listening to a lot of Folkways records back then, and if you heard a lot of the old Monkey Chants and the Tibetan uh, percussion records, and uh, I heard for myself a lot of the spirit of Mingus's music in that, uh, the way the drums are often hit, uh, and that interesting timing. So um, I like <laughs> first made a mock. Um, yeah, I thought he would appreciate this. To be honest, you know, uh, from what I saw and have come saying, I saw him. You know, I would say a hundred times. And uh, I don't know, the thing just to go for a second of, I mean, of that other side, because I've witnessed that within a few people. I had a few encounters with Miles Davis or, or more, and I work with Lou Reed that are people are often talked about, like, you know, these uh, hard, horrible people. And they're, you can't write music like that and be that way. It's Some of it's shyness, some of it is you want to, you know, have your music heard, and and um, when it's that different, you run into situations. I mean, that's what I meant. Even looking in Mingus's eyes, at times I did meet him, and Miles, I saw a sweet side, and like Lou, just working with him, I saw him like storm off the stage in Vegas, demanding that the slot machine stop. <laughs> I Lou, mean, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lou know, Reed, yeah, played. Oh, everyone Vegas. plays the House <laughs> of Blues there, right? Big money. <laughs> but going back, it's just, you know, but there's just a shyness. There's, it's an artist thing, you know. But because, um, I mean, I, you know, with Jersey N, especially some of those, me, myself, and I, and uh, Columbia Jazz Fusion, he was always searching. So I just thought, so I put together a script using um, all these Folkways records from Channing, like more of a movie, and inserted, for whatever reason, in it, George Harrison's Wonderwall music. Uh, the psychedelic kind of thing because I knew Mexico and you know I just had this these image and then I put Mingus uh, material to this. It was making a script like this thing with a bamboo flute reminded me of Meditations and uh, the Weird Nightmare song and Freedom with those cla you know that's with the humming and the, the slapping of the feet whatever. However, he got that effect and. Yeah, once again, by accident, I saw a concert with the Harry Parch instruments. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. He was uh, another Los Angeles musician, which also I, but they must have known each other, uh, or I wish they did, would know each other, that uh, wrote in a 12 scale, like out of the 12 tone, well, I don't know the musical terms, but he needed to invent his own musician uh, uh, instruments to play that music, which were basically mutations of uh, real ones, like his uh, surrogate guitarra and the cloud chamber balls. So I went through this thing to get the instruments for the album. And we hired first a great, uh, what I call house band of uh, Phil Frizzell, Greg Cohen, Don Elias, uh, Michael Blair, Sid Don Byron. Um, you can see Don Elias is not with us anymore playing the bass marimba. Basement, we have to cl climb up on a ladder to play. <laughs> just like King Kong. And then invited people that just happened to be around. Uh, Elvis Costello came in to do, 
you know, the weird nightmare song. And so it was, uh, we just went into a studio for a week and I had these examples and this Mingus stuff and we would learn the song and play it in the style often of these uh, Folkways records. Um, and then that was all the record except later finding out that Keith Richards and Charlie Watts were, uh, you know, big Mingus fans. We just uh, went and did traditional, and I thought it was traditional recordings of the Mingus songs with those two. And uh, yeah, the, the Keith Richards session was just beautiful. It's actually on film. It's a movie that Ray Davis of the Kinks directed in <laughs> the making of the album. Um, but yeah, I just uh, found an, uh, it was exactly what we set out to do. Um, once again, totally misunderstood by the uh, jazz police, as I call them. <laughs> that, uh, but it has uh, actually, it's, it's aged really well. Um, it's, it's still print, still sells enough. And, um, you know, I do think he would have really liked it. That's all I can say. But thank you. Eric, uh, you were uh, in your early teens when your dad passed away. When... When did, when did you know the enormity of who your father was? At, at what age did you have a sense of, you know, his, well, his he, output, he, his legacy? And yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, he was well, your dad, your dad, man. You know, and he's they're enormous. <laughs> like that's just the way they are. Um, I don't know. It, it it's one of these things that still ebbs and flows, it comes, you know, it's still, I still run into it, and I'm not really sure if it ever, if there's one exact moment when it, when it hit me, because it was, oh, when I was with him, it was just that way, you know, I mean, but admittedly, you know, when you're a kid, and you're the son of a musician, and your dad's basically taking you to the office, <laughs> you know, so like, you know, I was at the vanguard, you know, bored, to death, you know. I mean, because you're a kid, and it's like all these weird people. Of course, now I find out you know, they, they're drunks, they're you know, <laughs> drug addicts, you know. It was like, you know, but I mean, you were like, oh man, I got to go with dad to the gig, uh, <laughs> you know. And uh, but I, 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 you know, I just, I, I think I, my because it was sort of this, you know, the '70s. He was pretty, you know, huge then. So I mean, you, you would see the large crowds and, and so that would it would hit you but I think just through life and the people I meet and and, and I think that's uh, I, you know what you know forget the enormity of his of, of him being famous all that stuff the thing that I really dig is when people come up to me and they say you know your dad's music changed my life I have a friend of mine uh, I, I met him when I was working in the Borscht Belt, Belt Hotel um, as a sound man who was a drummer and he said you know I, every morning before I went to school, I played your dad's music, and it got me through high school, you know. And those are the moments when you realize, wow, that's how big he was. Like, you know, forget the, you know, forget the crowds and all that stuff. It's really about when I meet people that his music connected to, that's, you know, that's the legacy I love the most, and that's what's most important. You know, it's really not about the awards. It's not about, well, you know, that he never, and the awards that he gets now that he didn't get when he was alive, but... Um, you know, I, I just, he was a, to me, he was a, you know, a very loving man, and, and he considered his, you know, this is an odd thing to say as his son, but 
his real children were, were was his music, and uh, you know, and I'm thankful that it was more important to him than me. And uh, his legacy is really what what people get. You know, why Hal got attracted to it, why we all you know might be here, and, and, and uh, you know, and that's the legacy I want too. You know, <laughs> that makes gonna, any sense. Thank you. We're going to take questions in just one sec. I want to ask Emery to come back up and. Let's do number. Uh, let's do number four. Derek, we're going to go to number four on the on the sheet there, and then uh, and then we'll take your questions. Okay, Mingus was always concerned with race in his work, and uh, this quote. This is a quote from Mingus in Beneath the Underdog. He's being asked a question by a, a British journalist uh, about what is the difference between black and, and white music and can a British musician bring the proper feeling to jazz? If you're talking about musicianship and technique, I guess the British can be as good as anybody else. But what do they need to play jazz for? It's the American Negro tradition. It's his music. White people don't have a right to play it. It's colored folk music. When I was learning bass with Reinstagen, he was teaching me to play classical music. He said I was close, but I'd never really kind of get it. So I took some Paul Robeson and some Marian Anderson records to my next lesson. And I asked him if he thought these artists had got it. He said they were Negroes trying to sing music that was foreign to them. Solid. So white society has its own traditions. Let them leave ours to us. You got your Shakespeare. Your Marx, your Freud, your Einstein, Jesus Christ, and Guy Lombardo. But we came up with jazz. And don't forget it. And all the pop music in the world today is from that primary cause. British cats listen to our records and copy them. Why don't they develop something of their own? White cats take our music and make more money out of it than we ever did or do now. My friend Max Roach has been voted the best trumper in many polls, but he's offered less than half of what Buddy Rich gets to play the same pieces. What kind of shit is that? The commercial people are so busy selling us what's hot commercially, they're they're choking to death the goose that's laid all these golden eggs. They kill Lester and Bird and Fats Navarro, and they'll kill more. Probably me. I'll never make money. I'll always suffer. Because I shoot my mouth off about agents and crooks 
And that's all I want to say about it tonight. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that. But a lot of people don't get that Charles Mingus had what they considered some of the earliest salt and pepper bands, which were mixed, you know, white folks and black folks playing his music, you know. And uh, he always said to me, if you could play, you could stay, you know. So and you'll also find that Charles Mingus had many, many faces to many different people and that my brothers and sisters knew it. We all know him in a different way, and people that were friends with him know him in different ways. So I think that's also like one of his great composition. You know? he, he, he liked to provoke, though, obviously. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, the thing that we should, th this is, uh, if you've got the front of that book there, the thing that we should say that's really uh, oh, right. hilarious about yeah. Charles Mingus's autobiography <laughs> is a statement that he has at the front of the book. And it's very short. I wonder if you would please read that real okay. quick. Some of the names in this work have been changed, and some of the characters and incidents are fictitious. Uh, I, I, had a great, I had a great time with Britt Woodman one time when he told me that they all, he and my dad and a bunch of his, and Britt Woodman and a bunch of guys made up a bunch of stories because the editor said there was too much stuff about music and it wasn't going to be that interesting. <laughs> so by the way, I am, I am actually the, uh, the original manuscript of all the stuff um, is in the Library of Congress, as well as a lock of my hair. So I'm not thrilled with the DNA. My DNA is sitting in there with the government, but it's it's sort of my uh, it's it's my father uh, before he died had mentioned the book that he had felt you know that you know basically it was edited all the stuff that was meant to him was edited out. So I'm trying to uh, get in there and and see if I can find all the music bits and make sort of the musicians edit. Of that book. So anyway, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So, all right. A few questions. This right. one. Okay. Um, before we do uh, Q and A, just um, Mr. Colette will be leaving us now. But if we can give him a hand for participating with us, thank you very much. Thank you. And now I'd like to give you just a few instructions um, before we do our Q&A. This is being recorded for both video and audio podcast tonight, so all questions must be asked into the microphone. There's two of us going around on each side. And um, also, if you could state your name before your question. And also, our donation buckets will be going around at this point, so we do appreciate any and all of your support. So just raise your hand and wait for one of us to get to you. Any questions? Questions are $5 each. Okay, uh, I'm Deborah Levine, and I just want to leave this evening um, with a sense of uh, how this artist, if there was any California in him, if you could define that a little bit for me, in his sound, in his attitude, in his relationships, his artistic relationships, anything that feels California more than a New York-based artist. He would have probably been, that's the, would have been, you know, because, I mean, Mingus did leave here. I mean, unless I'm totally mistaken, at a very young age and made his name in New York. So um, I think you'd find that in his own words. So, I mean, 
Yeah, Buddy stayed, and uh, he was really the king of California. Um, I mean, I, I, as you know, he died in Mexico, but I believe they were actually making plans for him to come back here and uh, come to LA and, and, you know, see Buddy and, and all his friends. And I think, um, I mean, he spoke of California fondly. I, I, I'm not, uh, while I did have a great time hanging out at some jam sessions with, uh, oh great, now I blanked out on someone's name, which you've experienced all last night in the conversations, um, where there was a time where you could play some musicians' solos to where he lived. Like you could tell someone's from Philly or you could tell someone's from Chicago. I, th I think my dad's music is sort of void of that. And that's what I kind of liked about it. I don't even really think of his music as New York. Though, and I don't know what that means, you know? I mean, I think, I, I think um, yeah, he loved his family that was in New York. I don't think he got over to see them much. And he loved this, I mean, in California and New York, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you could ever pinpoint the sound. I mean, people always say, wow, even with my music, they'll say, your stuff is very New York. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I really don't. But um, I think, yeah, yeah. I was at it. Is if you're aggressive, you're from New York. And if you're mellow, you're from California. Well, all right. <laughs> and there's loads of mellow, and there's loads of California. I think everything influenced him. And, and, and I think, had he not been here, he wouldn't have been the musician he was. I mean, certainly, you know, had he not run into Buddy, he might not have been a musician. <laughs> you know, he'd be playing classical music somewhere, maybe, who knows? You know. Right, exactly. <laughs> nope, nope, sorry, that wouldn't happen. No. <laughs> Laura, and where are you? We have another question here to your right. Hi, my name's Melissa Delia Gutierrez. I just didn't get the name of the film that they did to do the documentary of the filming of the album and what was the name of the album it's hard to find it is called weird nightmare and uh actually it's it's on google uh, no, what is it youtube you can actually it's like in eight segments i realized i just realized that yeah I, I watched a bit of it wow okay it's a strange movie i don't know if it works but it uh i mean because a lot of people have done uh, really ronnie things here tonight he did a harry smith film that incorporated one of our projects Brilliantly, the only other ones that did that were, you know, they tried to put it in a tribute thing. So it's an odd <laughs> kind of movie because it doesn't, it's not really, we didn't really do a tribute, but it's got some footage and some things that are definitely worth seeing. We have a question to your left up here. You can stand so it's easier. Oh, hi, uh, Leonard Perez. I was wondering, do you think that uh, Mingus would have embraced hip hop had he uh, lived longer? If you, if you talk to my brother Charles the third, he, he claims that the whole hip-hop style, dress-wise, is from Charles Mingus, <laughs> which actually I think is well-founded. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think, you know, I think, I think a lot of us would likely think he would, you know. But I, he loved, you know, he loved embracing new technology, so I think he would definitely love Pro Tools and, you know, and, and all sort of technology. Because he, you know, I remember he had one of the first answering machines, phone answering machines, <laughs> and it had a remote. And this thing was bigger than, I mean, it was a gigantic box. And I remember him, like, we'd go walk, and he'd go about half hour, and he'd get to a public phone, he'd call, like, you know, and it would answer the phone. But um, 
to back to your question, I don't know. You know, I'd like, I, I mean, I, I don't, I know that, like, he hated the Beatles. <laughs> and, and, I, and he hated, you know, it was like, it was sort of, I think part of it had to do with not so much the music, but just, it, it always seems kind of unfair how music that's, you know, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to offend Beatle fans at all, because, I mean, the stuff's great. I'm not going to knock it. But I think penning the tunes that my father penned and penning the tunes that you know, Lenny Carvey did, it takes a little bit more work. And somehow one made a heck of a lot more money and got a lot more support. The other one, you know, the money couldn't support even, the, you know, the 30 musicians. The whole thing. I think he would love the, the uh, at least the hip-hop unity that, that, that I've experienced. And I think that he would embrace, he embraced people who approached music passionately no matter what the music was. And he'd respect it. So I think that's all we could really ask, you know. I one experience, I don't know, when I first, right after I moved to New York and I got a job at a record company, and this is the 70s, and he used to get invited. I had a lot of parties back then, receptions, and I used to see him at a lot of these. I mean, I saw him at one for, uh, like, um, Led Zeppelin, thing, a lot of the Atlantic stuff, um, who else is, uh, Crosby, Stills, and that, I mean, I would, you'd see him at these things, and talking to people, and, but, you know, so I thought there was some interest, though, his producer at the time, Ilhan Mamarlu, when I brought it up to him, he went, oh, he just comes for the free food. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't sure, but, <laughs> hey. Well, I think my, my brother Charles and, and I, uh, they, they gave uh, our dad a uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. And my brother and I, the, they gave us, they had a big thing, you know, the Grammys or whatever, the day before. And uh, both my brother and I were with Ziploc bags at the buffet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there were a bunch of musicians sitting with my dad were like, the legacy continues. And they were laughing. You know. <laughs> you, yeah, but... Man, we had salmon for weeks. <laughs> okay. I, I, you should all get to the reception before Eric gets there. <laughs> and we have another question here to your right. My name's Robert Sachs. I, I believe that Mingus did at least one recording with Duke Ellington. I think it was called Money Jungle. And if you could give some of the background on that. I'd be interested in what their relationship was like and on that project. Well, from what I know of, of that, because that was a record. Boy, I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember when the record took six months. <laughs> it cost like $100. No, they could, ugh, so easy to get them now. No, I chased that record for about two years. It was one of the most, it's like punk, that record. I mean, I guess someone just put them together, but these stories of it are, uh, uh, which I guess that's why I thought before, there's probably a bit of shyness and nervousness that wasn't Ingus that would bring that other side out, because there's stories about him coming in, and, and Ellington, he did acknowledge he idolized Ellington, and that was his hero. So he was flipping out. He can't play with Duke, and he threw down his bass. And he, I mean, there's, there's, there is stuff if you look up on the internet about that. Cause, so um, it's an amazing record. I mean, the energy you can tell uh, 
<laughs> was something was going on there, some electricity. Then I found that I don't know if that was the reason, but I th I heard he was. You know, I'm sure he was completely nervous of playing with Ellington and with Max Roach, and he he would just let it let it out and you know caused uh, attention to himself like that. And was it a small group? Yeah, just a trio. A small group. Max trio Roach, uh, yeah. Mingus, and Duke Ellington. I mean, it's it's a must, but it 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 does. It's kind of avant-garde in his own way to hear Ellington playing like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's amazing. A few times, if New York's uh, uh, hung around a lot at those jazz lofts with uh, the beginning avant-garde and the world, you know, Oliver Lake and Sam Rivers back then, and sometimes they bring in one of the guys from that generation, and they, it wasn't they just sit back, you see him smile and go, oh, we're going to do this today, huh? <laughs> going to make some, <laughs> they, you know, just easily adapt to it. And I think, if for anything, that Ellington's playing on that record, going against this energy is, is amazing. It's one, of, it's one of my favorite records. Um, I do remember Max Roach, I had the great privilege of having a, a wonderful, really long hang that the people at Sweet Bales were very upset about because he delayed the, <laughs> the concert by an hour. But um, he talked about that, and really, it, it, my dad was just really nervous. And and uh, and uh, and I think it was because it was such an intimate setting, and he was really basically horrified that he'd blow it. And it, uh, from Max, what Max had told me that my dad dropped the bass and left and was crying and was really you know losing it, and um, and nobody could console him. And then I, I believe Ellington just came in and said, "Look, you know, let's just let's just do this." You know, I mean, I, I mean, you know. I couldn't imagine that either, you know. And it's still, I, th I just feel like there was, to me, that's a, it's, it's a very loving record. It really is. You know. Well, I sound like a hippie, don't I? <laughs> Money Jungle. And yeah, did they it's play? It. A man shoot. Were they Ellington compositions? Your dad's compositions? What do you remember? I, they're Ellington. They are. Yeah. I have a question to your left, far back. This will be the last question of the night. Please join us for drinks up. In the outside in the lobby. And lastly, um, on behalf of Sokolo Public Square, we'd like to thank Olga Garay and the entire staff of the Department of Cultural Affairs for putting tonight's great program. Thank you. Next answer. Sure. Hi, my name is Eddie Resto. I'm from New York. I play the bass. Definitely Charles Mingus influenced my life. But I'm curious as to towards the later part of his recording career, what caused him to record a cumbia record that's a Colombian rhythm and the Latin community in New York was wondering if he was Colombian and it was really Carlos Dominguez. <laughs> what was it that made him do a cumbia record which is a Colombian rhythm? Well, it actually it was, uh, Thank you. It, was, uh, it, was, it was a score for a film, I believe. And he really explored the rhythms and all that. But that's funny enough, I used to box under the name Enrico Dominguez <laughs> years ago. So, but um, I mean, he loved he loved the uh, the Latin bass. I want to say Cachao. I mean, he really loved you know the Latin bass. I mean, I, I you know I mean uh, I really I think that's where I wish he had time to explore that more because that's I mean Hal and I were just we were talking about like three of us were talking about that album last night. It's amazing, and yeah. you want it to go on. And I think it's like what is it two tunes? 
I mean, total. I mean, it's, it's 20 minutes. The yeah. first piece. It's a, it's, it's incredible. I think in that late in his, in his life, I said I got to put together this uh, anthology <laughs> for Rhino, and I just at that point I just felt, uh, you know, it was w well past his passing. And I just thought it'd be better to open with this late piece. That just I think it's a perfect how it, it involves the movements and getting into that shortening bread part after it is is just incredible. Uh, it was a big fight with them because uh, they like it in chronological order, which is what you get. But it is, yeah, it is to me one of, you know, on the level of a lot of his great stuff. Also, I mean, it's great rhythms to play offense as a bass player, as I'm sure you know. And uh, yeah, I mean, really, that's, uh, I felt like that was a path he was headed down. Unfortunately, didn't get to uh, to take it. But uh, yeah, man, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah. I uh, want to thank the uh, Zocalo staff uh, for their usual fantastic job uh, putting these nights together. And uh, thank all of you for coming. Yes. Um, I want to thank my old friend Emery Holmes II. And uh, my new friends, Hal Wilner and Eric Mingus. Thank you all very much.